You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I'm the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I've been practicing exclusively divorce and family law for the past 16 years. Everyone has a story. I interview them. Wake Up Call is an opportunity for you to hear inspiring stories from people who are making hard decisions, overcoming their fears, and living their most authentic life. Everybody, you are listening or watching Wake Up Call, the podcast, and joining me today is a special guest, also a friend, Marquita Plum Jenkins. She is an inspirational and leadership speaker, author, consultant, and entrepreneur. She's also a service-disabled veteran, and we're going to talk about her experience in the military and a lot of other important topics. Thank you so much for joining me today, Marquita. You are so welcome. Thank you for having me. Of course. Well, we've been talking about doing this for a while now, so we're finally getting around to it. Yeah. And there's just looking at your bio that's available online, there's just so much to get into and so much to talk about. And Mm -hmm. I love stories like yours because you've experienced a significant amount of adversity from the time that you were a little kid. Yeah. And as an adult, and yet you somehow still are always smiling. You're always happy. I don't think I've ever seen you in a grumpy mood, so you must hide it well. I do. I, <laughs> yes, right. And I, you just seem you seem like you're so optimistic all the time, despite all those experiences. And I really admire that so much. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. You're welcome. Um, cause we all know people that have everything, right. But somehow they're just still like grumpy cat every day. Right. You know, oh my God, <laughs> it just angers me. I'm like, you want to trade places for like what one day, just one day. <laughs> yeah. It, it really is a mindset. So I don't even know where to start. You know, why don't we just kind of start from the beginning? Like, tell me about where you grew up and you know, what it was like for you. Cause you made a reference that you were in poverty and mm-hmm. I don't, I kind of want to hear more about that. Sure thing. So I am from the East Coast, just like you, eight hours away from you, from the good old state of Virginia, dwindle it down a little bit more to what we call the Hampton Roads, dwindle that down a little bit more to the city of Norfolk and one of the best neighborhoods out there, which is called Berkeley. That's where I'm from. Not Berkeley, California with an E, but Berkeley without an E, (laughs) the extra E. And um, that's my hood. That's where I'm from. That's where I grew up and where I have earned, uh, I would say, a majority of my my scars and stripes. But they are and it equipped me to become who I am now. So as you uh, as as you have alluded, yes, I grew up in um, everybody out there you know, their parents were kind of dealing with some financial issues. That was at a time when you it, you either came from a, a single parent home or, or a two parent home. And parents during that time, it was always about go to college and get an education so that you can get a good job. That's yeah. what they instilled. It was never, you can be who you want to be. Yes, they gave you that pep talk, but it was more long They wanted you to be secure in what you did. However, in our neighborhood, it was a bit rough having to even get to that place because it it is a place where anything went. Um, It was drug infested. 
Uh, there was a lot of, of illegal activity. And when you are living in or from um, a home where money seems to be a scarcity, everything around you glitters like gold. Because all you're thinking about is how can I survive and or how can I help my parents to do what they need to do? And so everything in front of you, you don't see the bad in it. You just only see, oh, this is a way and how I need to survive and make money. And so um, I, I got caught up in a few things, but I will say that it is by the grace of God that he kept me <laughs> and my life from going down a uh, almost sure rabbit hole that would have probably led to destruction. And that's how I ended up going into the military, because I knew that if I didn't at the age of 19, I had already had a couple of brushes with death. I needed to do something. So that's what I did. I, I took off. Wow. There's so much there. We got to back yes. up a little. So were your p- parents married and, and together when you were growing up? Uh, yeah, they were. So uh, my mother met my father. I, I don't like to say the word step. He's the dad that I knew at the age of six. Unfortunately, they separated around the time of age 15, 16. So I had enough of him that he instilled a great amount in me. However, he left at a very pivotal time in my life that I needed him as a teenager. You don't pay attention to your parents and how they love on each other as a child. You don't pay attention to how much you need your father in your life as a little girl because your mind is filled with dolls and playing. And for me, I was a nerd to my heart. So all I cared about was reading books and I used to teach my stuffed animals. <laughs> I had my my cup of hot cocoa. That was my coffee. That was what I was allowed to have. And I was a very studious child. So I stayed to myself a lot or when I went outside to play. I was a tomboy. So when I was younger, I used to hang around a lot of guys. We used to climb trees, playing dirt, playing mud. Then of course it was time to come home. So at that time, I had that balance. I had security. I had what a lot of my other peers did not have. But Based on issues that I didn't find out about until I was older, um, he left at the time that I needed him the most. And that was the time that I needed to be reassured as a young girl in this rough. I mean, this, the neighborhood, it, it was rough. It was like you, you, it was survival of the fittest. I mean, it was you either roll with the punches or you get rolled over. <clears throat> and so with that being said, um, I had to do a lot. In order to excuse me one second, in order to uh, make sure that I made it, um, and in turn, with their issues, it kept me in a position of having to learn certain things that I needed to learn, but I ended up learning them the wrong way and from the wrong people, and so I ended up being in the streets a lot, hanging around. Um, people that, you know, I'm not calling them bad, but it was how they learned. And so they taught me or they answered the questions that I had so many that I needed answers to. And I started to emulate what I saw. Yeah. Well, I think we all do that, right? As kids, it's just whatever environment you're in, that's what is normal to you. Right. Right. Absolutely. So let me ask you this. Where was your biological father? Great question. So I did not learn of my biological father until let me let me not okay learn i started to question more all right so let's back up let me give a little bit of history about myself so my father that raised me 
the one that married my mother, he was full-blooded Puerto Rican. He was from the Bronx, New York. And so clearly we could see a difference, you know, in color. Yeah. <laughs> when I got older, I started to question why do I look different from my siblings? Um, and it was like uh, my mom, she sort of kind of answered the question because at that time she just knew that this was her forever love and that she would tell me when she thought that I was old enough to understand. Well, I never let it go. I'm, I'm like a dog with a bone. I'm very persistent. When I want to know something, I'm going to keep circling back around to that subject because now my curiosity is peaked. So it wasn't until some time after they separated that she felt comfortable enough sharing that with me. So she told me name and uh, where she last knew that he was. Um, I didn't know at the time that I had siblings older than me or, you know, from, from my night, my biological father. And it kind of remained like a, a secret. Um, she did end up coming across an uncle at one time when I was home visiting from the military, she had gotten his information at that time. We actually had home telephones, not the cell phones. <laughs> so some kind of way she ended up losing that phone number. So it was like every time that I got close, because honestly, Christina, there was a part of me that had a big question mark over it for so many years. So you have me being in this neighborhood and in this environment where clearly I didn't fit in. I had I forced myself to fit in. I had to fit in to a degree, but I was never supposed to be a product of my environment. It was just only supposed to make me uh, primarily who I am and, and who I was to become, but it wasn't supposed to consume me. So now you have a question mark here as to, well, where do I fit in? Where do I belong? And now you have, well, what is my heritage and where, who am I? What makes me be me? And who is this person? And I want to know so much about him. And where's the rest of my family? And so oftentimes I found myself, and I think that was the reason why I became such a researcher that I am now, because I was always curious and I was always asking questions. I was very inquisitive. I just wanted to know because I felt like if I'm walking around with these question marks and clearly, you know, I've gotten some bad advice and it did not land me where I wanted to be. So there has to be a better way to do this. All right. So long of the short, um, time passed and I ended up working at a job that I was smack dab with my first cousin and did not know that we were cousins. So the reason why my name, the name that I have, my brand name, Plum Jenkins, that is my actual family name. So Plum is the name of my biological father and Jenkins is the name of my mother's maiden name. So her family, that's the name that I had when I was born until my mother was married. That father, he adopted me. I had a Spanish last name. So a lot of people used to think that I was mixed. I was, but not Puerto Rican. My biological father is from a a Native American tribe, uh, Haliwasaponi. So I am Native American and African-American. And that explained a whole lot about me and just different things that I was noticing. So as I came across this cousin, and that's the story I'll tell you at another day, he actually reunited me with not only my biological father, but also with my older sister and brother and other younger siblings that I had. So that was just a time I was so elated and it actually happened in the year of 2000. Wow, that's incredible. Mm -hmm. Yes, but ma'am. how did you? How did you? And I know this is a sensitive conversation; these, these mm-hmm. issues. But how did you end up losing touch with your father at all? I mean, did your parents just get divorced or separate and 
and he just kind of, you know, rode off into mm-hmm. the sunset. Is that what happened? Um, well, to my understanding, uh, my father was an entertainer. So my biological father was an entertainer. He was a part of a group called the Blockbusters. And so, you know, back then when you hear our parents talk or even our grandparents, and you know how they had like those traveling bands um, that went up and down just different places and how they would play in the speakeasies or different clubs. And, you know, like when we see those older movies, like with James Brown and Tina Turner and what their humble beginnings, you know, when they started in these little small environments and then they grew. Well, my father was an entertainer, him and his brothers. And so they used to sing and dance. That's where I get my creativity as far as uh, uh, singing, dancing, acting like a hodgepodge of different gifts and skills. I get that from him as well as my mom, but mostly from him. And so he met my mother. Um, They fell in love. They had a relationship. However, um, my biological father was what (laughs) the temptations would call a rolling stone. Yes, I was just (laughs) thinking that. Yes, he was. So my dad is, he was very, very handsome. As you can imagine, you know, someone that has uh, Native American features, he was gorgeous. You know, so there were a lot of women that were after him. And I don't want to say unfortunately, but, you know, that was his thing. So I have to Google um, him. What's his name? I'm just kidding. <laughs> later. You could tell me later. Right. I'll tell you later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, he, but of course, there were the special ones. So the special ones are the ones that uh, evidently he was a bit fertile. So <laughs> the ones that he connected with and that he actually gave the time of day to the ones that he actually had a relationship with. Those are the ones that he had children with. And those are the ones that he claimed. So there may be some others out here. I don't know, but I am grateful that I am a part of that great number. Um, But unfortunately, um, he was involved, you know, in another relationship that took precedence. And uh, I guess things kind of fell out between him and my mother. And she just said, you know, later for this, that's, I don't have to do this. And she didn't. So she left. Then she ended up meeting my stepfather. And as they yeah. say, the rest is history. Well, I can tell from the, just the way that you describe this, it doesn't sound like you're bitter about it because uh, uh, some people would be. You know, Christina, I'm going to be very honest with you. Um, for many years, I was. My thought was, what type of man, knowing that he had a child, would, would leave or would not try to find me? What type of parent knows that they have a child, male or female, and would just, how are you comfortable with leaving them behind? And I can say this because I'm a mother. I'm a mother six times over. And I have been through thick and thin as we're going to get into because of issues that stemmed from the military. and. My children dealt with that. They suffered right along with me. And even though I am grateful that I can say that they are resilient because of that, but at that time, it really could have caused more and major issues than what it did. So for a very long time, I will be honest and say that I was bitter. I um, was unforgiving. And I, I just, I didn't give him the benefit of the doubt until I was told the reason why and what happened. And that's why I say it's so imperative that even with parents, these are the types of conversations that 
don't discount the child and thinking that they can't handle certain information or because they're a, a certain age that, that they're not old enough. They're very perceptive. We have to give children really honestly the benefit of the doubt and, and to allow them to perceive the information that I believe is vital, share it with them because they're younger. So everything that they're coming across on social media, even what they're learning from their peers, some conversations that they're having, they should not be having until they're an adult, but they're hearing it. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, there. the job is being done for you. So you might as well. But um, it was at that moment that I had to understand and I got to a place of forgiving him. And that was the time that I had to learn how to forgive a whole lot of people, things that were done to me, including myself. So that was the, I guess that was a turning point for me. And that's when life started to become better for me. What about your mom? What, how was she feeling when you reconciled or, you know, rekindled a relationship with your biological father? Uh, she was, I guess I could say she, without her saying it, I think that she breathed a sigh of relief because she knew that that was something that really mattered to me. And I know in a sense, like my mother did the best that she could with what she knew, what she had. I mean, I I have a great mom. My mom is still alive. Thank the Lord. My, my biological father is still alive and my stepdad, he's still alive. Haven't talked to him in a while, but Everybody did, and they played a pivotal role in my life at the time that they were supposed to. And everything else is a part of the journey of life that we have to come across as adults, and we have to get it the way and how it's meant to come to us. So everybody can't fulfill everything. They can only give just whatever their portion is enough to give us what we need in order to get started on our own. And then we have to make that perception. We have to receive things how they come. And then we have to make our own determinations and decisions. And so when I was younger, I used to have a problem with holding grudges. I used to get mad, you know, at my father that raised me. And I remember, you know, being in the same house with him because he disciplined me for something and I was upset about it. I would act like he wasn't even there. And she saw this as a problem. And so she knew that I needed to get that closure so that I would not alienate nor take out the wrong actions on the right people. Yeah, that, that's really observant. And to go back to something you said about kids, how mm-hmm. you know they are paying attention to things even yes. when they're really little and you just think they don't, they can't understand that's very true. <laughs> Maybe they can't understand as an adult, but they sure do get a lot more than we think they do. They do. For you and to I, be asking at six years old, you know, uh-huh. why do I look different than the, yeah. you know, the other <laughs> siblings is, is really proof of that. Yes. <laughs> Can I say a funny story about Yeah. That? So uh, when my, like I said, I have six children. When my older two uh, were a little younger, I had, I think at that time, four at the time. And um, I was struggling financially. I found myself in this bind again. And um, just sharing a a transparent piece of myself, um, oftentimes in order for me to kind of, as they say, fake it till I make it, or I was in between paychecks, I used to have to take items that I had and I had to take it to the pawn shop in order to get something to hold me over because I, whatever job, if if I got paid every week or every two weeks, whatever it was, that's just how I did it. As they say, Rob Peter to pay Paul. 
And I remember <laughs> going to, uh, I can't even think of how old, it was my son and my daughter. Um, how old were they? I think uh, my old uh, my oldest son, I think he was like maybe, uh, maybe 12 or 13 and she's three years younger. So she was about 10, maybe going on 11, but she's very perceptive. She was, she's very smart. Like she was always advanced. And they saw the building that we pulled up in. So they knew what this place was. And um, we, uh, I guess when I came out of it, they didn't give me, you know, whatever I was asking for. So my son was asking once he saw the item that I took out, and I think it was like his game system or something like that. And he was asking, what was I going to do with it? And I said, well, you know, mommy needs to put dinner on the table for this week. So I'm just going to see if they'll, you know, bar it and babysit it, you know, try to use technical terms that they could understand, but he knew what it was. And my daughter was like, so we're going to another pawn shop. And I said, yes, yes, we are. And she was like, well, you're probably going to pawn us next. And I was (laughs) looking like, oh my God, (laughs) like first, how do you even know what that is? And then secondly, to even say something like that, I never forgot that. And I I remind her of it often. So of course, you know, she's like, oh my God, mom, I'm so embarrassed. But just to allude to the fact that kids, it's not much that you can get past them. They see it. They may not say anything, but they see it. Well, by that point, they can read. Yes. You know, it's always (laughs) fun when you, when they're really little and you can spell things. Yeah. And but then when they once they learn how to read and spell, you can't do that anymore. <laughs> yep. Uh, but by that age, they could read. So yeah, it's interesting how we try to fool them, and, mm-hmm. and also how we sort of make up stories, you know, to 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 maybe sugarcoat what's actually Girl. happening. Yeah. But. They they get it. I mean, yeah. maybe not on the same level as an adult, but they do get it. Was she mm-hmm. really concerned that you were going to try to pawn them? I mean, that, or was she kidding? That was her thought. No, she was serious because she was she was she was sad. Yeah. <laughs> she saw how her brother was feeling. She spoke what he didn't say. Well, you know what? I mean, you you've acknowledged that you grew up in poverty and yeah. you know, I don't know your situation or what it was at that time, but mm-hmm. you can probably relate to some degree because when you grow up poor and you yeah. have that experience, you know what it was like for you. Mm-hmm. So do you ever think about that? You know, what it, what it was like for your own children to experience that. Oh, for sure. Like, oh my gosh. Okay, Christina, you're like asking me all of the tea, right? So (laughs) I have another funny story. (laughs) Um, So I kind of called myself. (laughs) Oh my God, Christina. Okay. So here we go. (laughs) I um, attempted to join a group of, let's just say, pharmaceutical technicians that worked (laughs) on the corner, if you get what I mean. Yes, I do. (laughs) So I went from actually kind of transporting a little, and I wanted a little bit more than that um, because I'm just like, uh, I tried to do a bus run from Virginia to New York because that's how they did it back then. And uh, something kept happening. 
every time it was time for me to leave. And so I was just like, later for this, it's not working. Not understanding that I was, you know, divinely being protected. But I said, I I need to do something else. Like I just, you know, I need to get this working right about now. So I had a friend of mine. This is where the entrepreneur inside of me comes in at. Like when I was younger, I was always thinking of different things that I could do. (laughs) This is so embarrassing. It's okay. um, Okay. So let's go back to the age of like eight or nine, right? Um, I had two friends and you can look them up. They're actually lawyers as a matter of fact. Oh my God, this is so amazing. Okay. So I had two twin friends that stayed behind me in my neighborhood. Well, they, their sister stayed behind me. They used to come and visit. So they lived in Virginia beach, but I lived in Norfolk, but they would come and they would, um, you know, they would, they would spend like, you know, some time with her. And so, um, their names are Tanya and Wanda. So I can say that because, you know, they, they are very prominent right now. One is actually a judge. They both started off as lawyers. One is a judge and one is still a lawyer, but very prominent, you know, so you can look them up. They're really good. So we came up with this idea that we wanted to, you know, try to get some extra money so that we could go, so that we could go to um, the candy lady. So we were thinking of things and where we could get extra money or change so that we could go to the candy lady or so that we could go to the store. So I said, I know what we can do. Let's make peanut butter cookies. So we got a recipe, I think either from her sister or from my mom. And, you know, we gathered all of, we, we pulled our resources together and we started making these cookies. And I had uh, my, my brothers, my siblings had a, a wagon. So we had peanut butter cookies. And I was like, we got we to gotta add some other stuff to it. And so I thought of, I said, I know, because something that I liked, that I think they wanted to do, um, they wanted to make like little trinkets. And I said, let's add another food item. I said, what about fried cheese? <laughs> so they was like, yeah, that's a great idea. So we fried up some cheese. <laughs> it was government cheese on top of that. And we put it in plastic bags. <laughs> I've had government cheese, so I know what Girl, you're talking about. The best grilled cheese sandwiches, right? <laughs> Some so people don't were, even know what we're talking about. They don't, but if they Google it, <laughs> so we put we, we put our wares on the wagon and we just went around the neighborhood and people supported us because they just thought it was the cutest thing. Um, you know, gave us our little, we, I think we was asking for like a nickel or 10 cent. Like we had no concept, you know, of supply and demand or how much stuff should cost. We were just, you know, we, we were making money. So we split it up and that was that, that stuck with me. So here I am now I'm in middle school and I meet a friend of mine. He, when I say young entrepreneur on the, on our, on our school bus, And he was like, I have this great idea, but I want to get some help. And I was like, well, what is it? And he was talking about selling candy. So he used to deliver newspapers. So he took that money and he went to like a wholesale, like we didn't have Sam's Club back then. It was like, uh, I think it was Costco was the one that was around at the time. So I think he had his mom or somebody take him to um, go and, and get like buy candy in bulk. So I had my book bag. He had his book bag. So we used to split it and he would do his and I would do mine. And then we would come together at the end of the day. And because I kind of worked for him, he would give me my split and he was like, okay, so now what you do is you take that and then you just start kind of buying your own. So he was teaching me at a young age how to flip my money. 
Well, fast forward, we get into high school and he's also the same guy. <laughs> now, now he's into the streets. Now he's yeah. that pharmaceutical tech. And he was the one that gave me like my first package. <laughs> well, that didn't go so well. <laughs> what happened? Girl, we're in this neighborhood, okay? Every drug addict on my end, we all, everybody knew each other. They knew I was from this neighborhood. They would see me walking up and down the street. I would oftentimes stand on the corners, you know, with the other, we call them corner boys, um, that was out there. Or, you know, you had your your guys that were the, the ones that were over them, you know, the big timers. I was friends with everybody. Everybody knew me. You know, it's, I wasn't a stranger. And the moment that I decide that I want to join forces and I'm standing on the corner, you know, I had my own little corner. Oh, they, nobody bought anything from me. Why? It, I'm so, telling you. So I what you're big, telling me, there's gender discrimination in that industry you too. Might as well say, now that I think about it, that's exactly what it was because Yes, you know, they knew the norm. And even though I'm out there, there was no way to de- to determine who was doing what because there were young girls that was running, as we called it. And then there were the guys that were distributing. So it was, you know, nobody, it, it, when, whenever, whoever, like, let's just, you know, say the, the addicts and those that were partakers, you know, I hate to say that, that term, but partakers, they got it from wherever. Like most of the time they were zoned out. So you're not paying attention to who's getting it. It's whoever has it. Let me, let me get what I need to get. So I'm just thinking it's just as easy for them as, as it, it should be as easy for me as it was for them. No, I'm telling you. Nobody bought anything. I, I think I sold one, one. And <laughs> I that's incredible. Like, well, you know what? Maybe that was, like you said, a little divine intervention, it right? Oh, it absolutely was. <laughs> well, and I will say, usually when a girl is standing on a street corner, she's selling something different. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I was fully dressed, honey. <laughs> no, I wasn't selling that type of product. <laughs> but were people sort of buzzing in the neighborhood? Like, what were the other corner boys? Were they like, really, Marquita? Come on they, now. They did. They did. They was just like, uh, shouldn't you be at the rec center? Because I was into a lot of like, like I said, you know, my dad was an entertainer. So I got a lot of gifts from him. So they knew me from being a cheerleader in high school. I was in a lot of talent shows because I could dance really well. I was into music, like all of these other things. I was the good girl. So they're looking at me like, what is she doing? And I'm just like, Hey guys, <laughs> you're like, I want the same thing you all want. I want some money. <laughs> Cause listen, I've got younger brothers and sisters that I, I want to eat. We want to eat. So just, you know, let's share the wealth. Don't pay me no mind. Keep doing you. I'm going to do me. Nah. Yeah. And we should tell people that you and your nuclear family, cause we just went over your biological yeah. um, dad, but mm-hmm. in that nuclear family that you grew up in, you were the mm-hmm. oldest of five. I am. Yeah. Yeah. So were you kind of like the caretaker? Were you like a, a latchkey kid? Oh my gosh. Yes. That, that is the best description that you, yes, ma'am. Okay. Everybody, when they saw me, they saw my siblings. When I would go up to the, what we had, the rec center is where I went to go and practice and um, where uh, it was just a way of escape. 
you know, so unfortunately there are so many of the boys and girls clubs that have been shut down. And I believe that when that started happening, that's what caused a lot of young people to start getting into mischief and just trouble that could have been avoided had they still had these places, these safe havens to go to and could just have stayed out of trouble, stayed off the streets and really had a fighting chance. So there was one end of my neighborhood that did have a boys and girls club, but all of the action was at the rec center. And so we, after we finished school, I had to walk up, you know, there was no taking an Uber and a taxi and all that stuff. I had to walk a few blocks to go and pick my brothers and my sister up from their school, had to walk back with them. And it's for these jokers and I'm a teenager. So I had no choice that once my father left, I had to step in to help my mom because she had to work. And sometimes she worked two jobs. So yes, latchkey kid is definitely, and kind of like a surrogate mom or, 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 um, a stand-in mom for my brothers and my sister. So there was a lot of responsibility that fell on me at a very young age. Were you resentful of that? And I know your mom will probably listen to this. We love you, mom. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, hey, we're mom. just talking about Marquita's experience yeah. growing up. And because how old were you then? Oh my gosh, I was, okay. So I started um, because my mom was very strict. She was a devout Christian and she had a problem with me wanting to go to this rec center because she knew Riff Raff stayed up there. She was very protective of me and wanted me to stay as innocent as possible and felt like, you know, these these influences were going to kind of tear at me and, you know, keep me from becoming who I needed to become. However, my dad was like, well, clearly we can see that she's talented. They need an outlet. She can't just keep playing on the front porch in the backyard. Like, you know, you you, you have to allow her to, to, to have some type, show us that she can be responsible. So also too, me having to bring, you know, my siblings with me, they came with me. And so once they saw that I was making really good use of my time and doing those things, um, I didn't have any issues with that. <clears throat> However, it did dampen a lot of what I needed to and how I needed to grow. So to answer your question, yes, I was resentful for a while because I felt like my childhood was a, a somewhat robbed. I was robbed of my childhood to a degree. I was forced to woman up in a neighborhood where you had no choice but to have to get in where you fit in. Like that was just it. You didn't have time to be weak. You didn't have time to <clears throat> um, to, uh, to to show your vulnerability. You had to show that I belong here. No, I'm not a pushover. Um, you know, what are we doing? You're not going to talk to me any kind of way. You're not going to treat me any kind of way. So you have growing up fast in, in that aspect. There were things that I should have never seen. You know, they're privy to certain types of violence. And even being in the neighborhood, I mean, of course, if I just talked about how prevalent and how heavy, you know, the, the, the drug world was there, then you can only imagine the type of wars that they had. Being around and seeing shootouts, even happening right across the street from me. And those, I mean, with machine guns, it, it, it was no joke, wow. you know, or, or just seeing um, if you came from a different neighborhood out there and you weren't from that neighborhood, oh, you better find an exit very fast because it wasn't just a one-on-one or it would be a group of them that jumped on you and you knew don't come back out there no more. So, I mean, it's all of that, you know, just being privy to that. 
But then you have having to grow up very fast and being responsible because now two adults have made a choice that affects everybody. So I'm affected. They're affected. They have no idea what's going on, but I do. And I wasn't allowed to do certain things that my peers were doing. I wasn't able to go to um, the skating rink and I definitely was not able to go to parties. That was like a no-no. Or if I wanted to hang out, we had to be home at a certain time because they had to be in bed by a certain time. And then when she did have to work, I had to feed them. I had to make sure that they were bathed. I had to help them with their homework. Oftentimes I had to do my sister's hair. So it was all of that, you know, was kind of was, was taken from me. And I wasn't given the, uh, the opportunity to grow up in that manner, but I had to woman up in this way. So it took me a minute, even with that, that when I got older, I felt like there were a lot of things that I didn't get a chance to experience. But I had that conversation with my mom and I you know, forgave her for that because I understood. And it was more of, instead of me forgiving you, I'm asking that you please forgive me that I even held this against you because I can only imagine what you were going through as a woman that you know is pending divorce. This is the love of her life. She's got you know this rebellious teenage daughter and these other children and seemingly no help. So I was really the only thing closest to her that was helping her get through the situation. And yet she's having the hardest time out of me. Well, I'm trying to understand what inspired you to want to be a corner boy. Corner girl. Well, yeah. I don't want to say corner girl because I feel right. like that means something different. Okay, yeah. But you, you were breaking of the night. Right. Yeah, corner you were boy. breaking the that. mold. You were gonna yeah. be you like, I'm gonna be a corner boy. Like, why do yeah. all the boys get to do it? So Absolutely. I guess you had that one attempt. Did you just mm-hmm. kind of give it up after that? I did. I did. Um, and the reason for that, no, I tried one more time. So the same guy took me to uh one of the local projects where his sister was living at. Well, it was, it was like what they call a trap house. So that was the house where they kind of did their business, but it's not where she lived. And I attempted one more time because I felt like, okay, everybody out here knows me, but let me go to a different place where I know that he's known, she's known, I'm good. However, um, trying and attempting again, and I'm in front of this house. And you know, she's like, okay, I'm going to watch from the window because she was handling what she needed to handle in there. I'm standing out here, you know, okay, now I'm about to get it. Let me answer your question. The reasoning or what was pushing me because we were really struggling financially. I guess um, maybe something was going on, you know, with my my uh, father at the time that he was not able to help the way and how he should with five children. And it caused us to go through some difficulties where uh, there were some issues with, you know, the utilities at one time being off and then on. Um, oftentimes there, we didn't have any food, you know, so that's where, and I would go and get the the box that had the government cheese and all of the other stuff in it. So when I tell you I got it from the mud, like this, is, <laughs> I earned, I earned to get in this position and where I'm going, moving from here, I have, this is my story and I'm walking in my truth. And so, but after a certain time, you, you get tired, you know, of not being able to eat what you want to eat. And that was my whole intention was to be able to help my mother. And to be able to feed myself, my siblings, and possibly figure out a way. Because if she knew where that money was coming from, she wouldn't have taken it because she was against that. Like my mother used to go around and she used to 
preach to other people and she would minister as they would call it to them. And she would lead people, you know, to Christ. So that was what she did out there. There would be absolutely no way that she would take what she would consider blood money. She wouldn't do that. So I would have had to find a different way, you know, to make sure that I was helping her without her knowing where it came from. So getting back to the story, um, I'm out here, you know, I'm just thinking, yes, I'm in my mind, I'm calculating what I'm going to get and what we're going to eat that night. And, oh, we're finally going to eat good. And, you know, I had all of these grander ideas and a couple of guys were plotting on wanting to rob me. And when I got wind of it, um, something almost went down. But I promise you, I really believe that before they could, and I mean, they were talking about robbing me at gunpoint, like real talk. So I'm looking at the house, like, is she looking and is she paying attention? Because now the hairs are raising up on the back of my neck and, you know, my, my street discernment is kicking in like, okay, something isn't right. You got one in front of me asking me questions. You got another one that's kind of eyeing me like, like he's looking very sinister in his face. I'm out there with nothing. Like I had a knife, but you know, what, what was that in terms of somebody that has, as they say, don't bring a knife to a gunfight. Well, that was literally it. <laughs> and there was nothing I was going to be able to do to stop a bullet. And so finally, I guess, you know, the sister, she finished, I guess she stepped away from the window or whatever. So she, she could see from the window, this picture does not look good. So she came out, they could see, you know, that, she was strapped, as we call it. She had a gun um, and they could tell because she had it kind of behind her. So it's kind of like a little stance that you walk in with and they backed away. But I believe that it was an angel that was protecting me because had she not came out, anything could have happened. But I felt like the moment that I started, one thing, if I don't know nothing else, I may be doing some wrong things, but I always know, call on the name of Jesus, even though I shouldn't say it like that. But, you know, I'm young. I mean, it's, it's just it's just what it is. And I just felt at that moment, I said, Lord, please help me out of this situation. And I could see that something was, you know, they were backing away. And then at the same time, that's when she came outside. And after that, I said, hell with this. I'm not doing this. It's not for me. And I left it alone. Yeah. I mean, at first you don't, I didn't even, it didn't occur to me when you even started telling the story that, but yeah, as a woman, you're so much more vulnerable. Absolutely. The dudes, yeah. right? You just are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, but I have to tell you, I mean, do you ever look back on that? I mean, do you honestly realize what huge balls it took for you to do that? I do. And I that's mean, why that's I really incredible. <laughs> that's why I'm, as I'm, I'm bold to a degree. I kind of lost my boldness after the situation happened in the military. I lost my confidence. I lost my boldness, but I was always that, that as I was very extroverted. I was outgoing and I had so much personality. And I mean, it's, I can definitely see a huge difference. And I see where that came from because I was not afraid. Like that's what I got from my environment. You you can't be timid. You just have to just step up to the plate, do what you have to do and act as if. And that's what I did in so many different scenarios. So yeah, you are absolutely right. It took a lot of balls. It did. It did. It did take big balls. And, but I have to say too, you know, also having grown up poor mm-hmm. as a kid, you don't have a lot of understanding, you know, why are things like this? Yes. And you yes. know, you're not like usually poor living in a ritzy neighborhood. So right. you just see everybody else's poor too. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you know, you kind of start figuring that stuff out like as you age, but mm-hmm. when you're really young, at least my experience was that 
I didn't understand. Like, why are we broke? I like, I didn't understand it. You know, like, why are we all fucking broke? I don't want to be broke. I'm tired of being broke. Why, why can't I have that stuff that I want? You know, why, why don't we have, you know, more milk in the refrigerator? Like, right. Like, and, and, you know, it's not a contest, but I think you definitely had some harder times than I had. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, not a contest, like whatever right. it is, you know, it happens. Yeah. But did you feel that like when you were that young age, were you thinking too, like, why the fuck are we broke? Like, why are we living like this? I did because Christina, I went from going to a private school when I was younger. Um, I was an honor roll student. And even though, um, the things that I'm into now, I, I wasn't aware of then. So in other words, like I love fashion. I'm into, um, you know, clothes and just things. My mom, she used to model. So I see where that comes from. But when I was younger, I could care less. Like I didn't think about that. So it wasn't like, oh, mom, can you take me to go get a pair of shoes? Or there's this like really cute skirt. Like I didn't think like that. Uh, I wore a uniform and then I had like my weekend clothes. And but most of the time I was a homebody, so I was home a lot. And my escape was in my books. Like I was reading novels when I was eight and nine years old because we took so many trips to the library. Like my mother, she's into education, so she's a very studious woman, and that's what she imparted in us. There was not a lot of TV time, to be honest with you. Many years we didn't even have a TV, you know, because she wanted to again protect us from what. They showed on the shows back then. I'm like, shoot, that back then was PG compared to what they show right now on regular TV. But yet she felt, you know, we, we, I need to protect. So I wasn't aware of a lot of things because all I knew was school and making these good grades. And I was getting these accolades. And whenever, the, you know, these field trips that we went on, they always had the money for that. So never thought about it until... I wasn't able to go to this school anymore. Then I ended up going to a public school. And when I tell you culture shock, out of this world, out of this world, it was almost like a minnow being thrown into uh, uh, an ocean with sharks in it. That's exactly. So I'm getting it from the neighborhood and then I'm also getting it from school. Okay. And that's when I started to notice the, the subtle differences. Now, mind you, where I lived at, I lived in what they call the boondocks. So it was more of um, the houses. I lived in, in, in the house area. And so, and the houses were really big. So we're talking old fashioned houses that, my God, maybe 1,500 square feet, maybe even bigger than that, probably 2,000 square feet homes filled with huge bedrooms and living rooms, dining rooms, great rooms, like all of that. So the people that lived on that end I wouldn't say that we were middle class, but if you lived in that part, because there's one section in which um, that that section, it went by your income. But in the section that I lived in, most of those people owned their homes. So my parents were buying this house and we went from being able to not have any issues to my dad used to take us out to these restaurants and we would go, oh my gosh, the vacations that we took every year were amazing until now it's just like, well, you know, dad, when, when is the next time we're going to Kings, Dominion, or Bush Gardens and 
it's no longer <laughs> or field trips or even being able to get pictures from school. I'm like, dang, mom, you don't have $15. Like it, it was a lot. It, it was, it was, it was major. And, um, and so that's when I started to notice. And because it, you've taken this part from me, now I'm starting to begin to think in my wheels, what can I do to help? I've always been a helper, always been a helper. But, you know, as an adult, looking back on your experience as a child, it's mm-hmm. a hard situation for a child to be in to feel like they that that's their responsibility somehow, yes. mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. uh, you don't want your kids to feel like that they have to worry about those grown-up things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of... And you tell me if you disagree, it's sort of like almost like an act of desperation to actually put yourself in a position where you're going to be a corner boy uh-huh. because mm-hmm. you want money because you yes. are tired of not having money to, to buy simple things for yourself. That's it. Let me add this to Christina. When you are around other females that they were dating the corner boys and they're not dealing with the issues to a degree that you're dealing with. And you see them with their hair done all the time, or you see them with their, they're wearing this guy's gold chain, or maybe he even bought one for her, you know, for Valentine's day, or um, she has some type of diamond bracelet on or diamond necklace or even diamond earrings. And she's able to go to the store and buy whatever she wants food wise, or, you know, she's always talking about the mall that uh, and took a cab, you know, that was, that was big time. Like we were taking the city bus, but to take a cab, it was almost like saying you were being chauffeured, you know, to, to go to the mall and then you get to go and shop. And then she's looking cute all the time. And she's in the latest sneakers and the latest jeans. All of that played a very major role in wanting to, if for nothing else, I want us to eat. And then eventually I can get to that. If I can give my own self that because I didn't have that. You know, I'm recycling the stuff that I have, trying to find different ways to make it cute. Yeah. I feel mm-hmm. like you just described Kim Kardashian and the rest of us <laughs> looking at her Instagram page like, I want those hair extensions. <laughs> I know it's different. It's different. Um, yeah. But I think that's really a testament to your character and your drive though, because yeah, thank you. there are people that I'm, I'm sure you you've sort of read this or heard it before, but there's like a cycle of poverty where people who grow up in that, it, it's just normal to them. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's something that I've, I'd like to talk about with, with in different forums because it's fascinating to me that why are there people mm-hmm. that just sit back and go, well, this is just how life is. Mm-hmm. Nothing mm-hmm. I can do about it. Mm-hmm. You know, accept it. And then there are other people that are like, no, I don't accept this. Life doesn't right. have to be like this. I'm mm-hmm. going to make it better. I'm going to get out of this. And you mm-hmm. obviously were one of those people that was like, no, I don't have to be broke. This just isn't right. normal. You know, yeah. this isn't how it has to be. Mm-hmm. And your, your corner boy aspiration, even though it was short-lived, <laughs> yeah. I think proves that. Yes, it and does. Then, and then I know we're skipping around a little bit, but even in your bio, you said that you joined the military as sort mm-hmm. of an escape. Yes. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Um, so to go back to the first thing that you said, it's, it's a word that you said earlier. It's mindset. And you know where that comes from? It comes from your environment, which includes people, whether it's family, friends, 
whoever. And the other thing is just within ourselves. When you take the word enemy, you have to think about inner me. We are our first enemy before everyone else. We live in what they call the free country. So nobody is holding you back from accomplishing or doing anything. We don't live in a communist country. We don't live in a place where certain things are regulated by the government. What, how many children you can have or, or in Haiti when they want to turn the water off at a certain time of day. We don't have to deal with those issues. So who's holding you back? Who's stopping you? It's a matter of getting sick and tired of being sick and tired. And that was where I was at and figuring out there has to be a different way. There there is a solution to this, but it takes having to first get so angry or get so upset about your situation that you want to do something about it. And then it'll prompt you to figuring out what can I do about it? which upon your research, when you start asking the right questions, you're going to get the right answers from the right people. And then you're going to see that there is a difference in who you are around and how they think. And they're either going to, they're going to influence you, but it's either going to be in a good way or in a bad way, either way. And so when I saw that that life was not for me, then um, at this time, you know, we're, we're talking a couple of years down the line, I, I have a son by now, my, my oldest child. Um, and so at the time that I wanted to follow suit with what my parents were saying, I wanted to go to college. There was a local HBCU and I've always been, you know, a fan of Norfolk State and that's where I wanted to go. However, I, I didn't have any guidance. I didn't have anyone that was saying, oh, you need to go ahead and get your application in now. Or, well, what do you want to do when you get older? I knew when I was younger, and I have no idea where I got this from, Christina. I knew when I was younger, I wanted to be a stockbroker. I wanted to do something that dealt with money. I've always known, or I guess some kind of way was privy to something dealing with wealth and had no idea about it. I wasn't, it's not like, you know, um, as you say, living in a ritzy neighborhood and, and, and my parents were, you know, of some upper class and I was used to it. We were, we were okay when I was younger. It's not like they had money flashed it around. They were, they were very careful with how they spent money. So, and I didn't have anybody else that was living like this grand lifestyle that influenced me. It, I probably read about it in a book. I couldn't tell you. I could not tell you. I knew that that's what I wanted to do. Fast forward, um, going into what pushed me into the military because I wasn't able to now go to this college because I had missed the deadline. I felt like this urgency that was like, I need to get out of this neighborhood while I can, because now I'm starting to hang with sketchy people. I'm starting to hang with those that were not so, they didn't regard life like they should. And I thought that this was a a, a fun group of people to hang around that goes to show, again, my mindset, it it, it was, now we're far from the young girl that, you know, wanted to be in all of these, these, these different events. And, you know, I want to be this and I want to be that when I get older. Now it seems as if I don't even know how long I'm even going to be on this earth because at this time I'm losing friends, you know, to violence or I'm losing friends to the, to, to the, the, the street world. And they're, they're going to prison and they actually get like football numbers for years. Like, and you're a lawyer, so you understand what I mean. 20 something years for this and 15 years for that. Now, now they want to legalize marijuana. But at that time, oh, you could get a lot of time depending on what you got caught with. 
you know? So it's like the nerve. But anyway, it was just getting to be too much. And so that's what pushed me. I said, well, if I can't do school, then let me go somewhere so that I can at least have a job and I can still learn something at the same time and they can pay for school. So I did my research, figured out what to do, and I left. So when did you first get the idea for to join the military? Did you see? Because I know they used to troll the high school campuses. Of course. <laughs> did yes. you dr- walk by one of those tables and the light bulb went off? <laughs> no, actually, um, on my mom's side, my uncles and my aunts, even though they were like really into sports and they were really good with basketball, they actually, the majority of her, my mother is the oldest of eight. So I come from a, a large family. And I think maybe my five or six of my uncles and my aunt, they were all, no, matter of fact, yeah, yeah, about five or six of them all went into the military. So military was something that I was accustomed to with them. Like when, when I was at some time, I probably had to babysit, you know, my uncle's uh, kids when they went on deployment or something like that. So I was always around it. And one of them pulled me to the side. Uh, you know, I guess my mom probably was talking to one of them about me being wild and <laughs> unruly. And so they was like, well, let me have a talk with her. So, you know, we talked about it. My first choice was to actually go into the Air Force. Um, I had scored very high on my ASVAB test and that was the lane that I was going to go in. However, at that time, and we're talking in the early 90s, so in 93, they their rule was that because I had a child and I was not married, they wanted me to have an actual adoption, like the process of the adoption. That it was it was that was it was going to take too long. What do you so mean an, ad- an adoption? Like how when people adopt kids and you know how it takes months? Like they wanted because they didn't want to have any issues that should something happen because, you know, back then, once you sign your name on a dotted line, you can't use any excuse to just get out. That contract is 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 bonded. Yeah, and, I'm not understanding though. They wanted someone to adopt your child? Yes. So they, that it, so that it wasn't your child anymore. Um, he would still be my child, but in, in order to watch him while I was gone, because you know, I have to go to basic training. I had to go away in order and somebody needed to legally have him so okay. that he was taken care of. But like a guardian. Yes. But okay. instead of them letting me do legal guardianship like the army did. They wanted an actual adoption. I'm like, lady, I don't have that kind of time. Like, I need to be on the first thing smoking. And so when I was leaving out of their office, like the vultures that the military is, <laughs> they were all kind of standing out in the hallway, kind of saw, saw me looking crestfallen in my face. And the army is welcoming me with open arms and saying, you know, well, well what happened, dear? And, you know, I'm just telling them all my business. And they ate that up. So because they didn't have that as an, that wasn't an issue for them. They said, well, we have a similar process. However, all it is is legal guardianship and you can get that done in a matter of a day. When they said that, that pricked my ears and the rest was history. So let me ask you, where was his dad? Great question. Uh, He was around. Um, We were not in a relationship at all. And I, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we don't have to go down that rabbit right. hole. All right. So no, but- he he was well, I mean, I guess the point of this story is mm-hmm. that he wasn't he going to take any responsibility. Not that he didn't want to. I didn't want him to. Uh because again, it was we we, we didn't have that it wasn't like that. 
And so I was, I'm very protective of my children. So early on, I've always been like a mama bear. And I felt like he was not responsible enough to take care of, you know, my son. And I wanted him to stay with my mom. So it wasn't a problem. It was just that you and I are not even like that, bro. So that's, yeah. you know. Because yeah. you, because I have to ask you about that thought mm-hmm. process. You wanted to join the military, mm-hmm. but obviously you have to go away to do that, right? It's not something you yeah. just come back home at night to do it. So you knew Absolutely. that you needed to leave your young son. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, and I don't want to speak for you, but yeah. it, it sounds like, um, you knew that you were still doing something good for yourself and for your son to to go away. You you couldn't have said it better. It's because my thought was, I want to make something of myself. I want to make my mother proud. Like it, it was almost like a way for me to make amends for so many things. I wanted to show her that you know, you don't have such a a bad daughter, you know, like I really, this is not how I started. Let me get back to what you knew me as and not even for her, but for me, make my family proud, you know, but also too, to just say, just because I'm from this area does not mean that I have to, that I have to portray that. So there were so many different reasons as to why this was so important to me. And that's what I took with me. So I was willing knowing that I would have the peace to know that my mother would take, do an excellent job with my son and I would have the peace of mind and knowing that I didn't leave him with just some stranger and not knowing what could have happened to him. I knew that she would take great care of him. And your mom was supportive or was she like, what? You're going to leave? <laughs> you're oh, you're no. going to... She was, she was very supportive. Anything to get me, because I was living back in that neighborhood. I'm older now and I'm back in that neighborhood and she's just like, girl, you need you you need to... You need to do something with yourself and it's not here. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. I, that's great that she Thank did you. that for you. Yeah. So you joined the military. Was it the army? It was. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah. how did you settle on the army? Because you said you wanted to join the Air Force. So I was not as aware of how, um, what the different forces, what they did. If I would have known then what I know now, that I would have chosen the Navy because the Navy actually equips you with an, a civilian type of job, even though you're military. So when, whenever the uh, personnel would have exited, you can leave out and you can take what you did in the Navy and you can do that now, you know, uh, on civilian terms. So in other words, you have a job. In the Army, they teach you something similar to what you can do as a civilian, but it is really geared towards the Army. You have to find the equivalent as a civilian when you leave out. So my job was a telecommunications specialist. If I were to put it in layman's term, think of somebody that either worked at Verizon. I could have worked at Verizon as a, as a call in the call center, or I could have been... I don't know if you guys had Cox Cable, but it's just a cable company. The ones that actually physically uh, uh, implemented your house in order to get the cable services. I did both. So we had a physical job in which we and I was uh, in an an MP unit, military police unit, as well as uh, physically. So there was no discrimination. Whatever the man did, the woman had to do, too. So here we are having to outfit this area. And I had, it was, it was a top secret position because we were dealing with linguistics and we were dealing with um, 
encrypted messages that needed to be passed back and forth between the the upper echelon of the of the army personnel and so therefore it um there was a lot of 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 security and secrecy you know just different things that we just you know had to deal with so they sent us first in order to secure this perimeter with a means on how to communicate so the best way that i can describe my job is it, you and I are around the same age. Do you remember that show called MASH? Yes. Remember the green telephone? And remember the uh, when you had they had this big, tall antenna and they also had this big, huge, heavy-looking radio? That's yeah. what I did. I made sure that the radio was, was connected and I made sure that the telephone, that they can uh, make calls back and forth. And I made sure that they were able to tap into some type of security code with this big, tall antenna that we had to erect. And then we had to lay the wire in order for this communication to not be staticky, to make sure that should there be an emergency that we can deploy or we can get the help that we needed at any given time. Well, let's back up a little bit because you didn't do that like day one. You had to go through boot camp. I did. I did. I have to tell you, I the the idea of boot camp scares the <laughs> shit out of me. Like it it intrigues me and fascinates me, right. but also scares the shit out of me because I <laughs> it looks so hard and the way they portray it on television is yeah. you know, you've got some drill instructor screaming at you. Yeah. Is it really like that? Yes, it is. Ooh. Yes, it is. <laughs> I went in in November and I didn't graduate until February because we went. I went before Thanksgiving. And then, of course, there was Christmas. They gave us like, I think, a week break, I think. Um, I went when it was cold. So it was in South Carolina. So I was on the East Coast. And I also, um, we were... It, I guess because they had to work something out. So I was in what was called like a um, delayed entry type of program where I went to a place where they had a, a holding of some of us, they called us soldiers, so that they could find the unit that we needed to go to. So that added a couple of weeks. So boot camp is typically eight weeks. So I went in the beginning of November and I should have graduated somewhere around the end of December, give or take Christmas maybe the first week of January, not all of November, all of December, and then all of January. And then I ended up graduating February the 4th of 1994. So then I had to go and learn my job. So now I went from South Carolina to Georgia to learn. And and you go to different states, have different different, uh, stations or duty stations that are in particular to whatever type of job that you're learning. And so telecommunications, we went to Fort Gordon, Georgia. And that's where we, and I was there from February and did not graduate until June. No, yes, June, until June. So when you first went in, was it like a culture shock? Because everything to and to me, it seems like it's so orderly and regimented. And, you know, they Barely. tell you like, practically how many squares to use when you go to the bathroom. <laughs> okay. Look, I mean, so culture shock from when I told you about my first one, then it's the second one because, you know, I'm rebellious. And now you have somebody in authority that is in my face. Like when we first went in, 
we weren't meeting drill sergeants and all of that stuff. We had to go what they call this amnesty room. So just in case you left with something that because, you know, they, they've got people from all walks of life. You got people that were from gangs, people that were just released from prison. And this was their way of you better straighten up and fly right type of thing. So they didn't know what to expect. And so they gave us the opportunity pretty much to kind of empty your pockets and make sure because this is your last chance, because when you sign on this line once again and whatever we catch you with, you could possibly be facing some charges. So we had to get that part straight. And then, you know, we raised our right hand. We did all of that. Now we're moving forward into uh, going into um, just the different, you know, stripping us down. So now we're leaving behind this civilian life and we're having to adapt a totally different way of thinking in which, yes, everything was regimented from the time that we had to get up to how we did and what we learned and about every single aspect of the military. Like when I say they put the fear of God into us because everything was about a ranking system. So even though I came in as what they would call an E-nothing, somebody that was an E, so that's an E-nothing is an E-1. So even somebody that is an E-2 had more rank than me. You just think that one little digit, but it was all about ranking. So can you imagine somebody that was a sergeant or somebody that was like a brigadier general and they're walking around with, you know, all of this power and um, looking down upon you and, and have this condescending look at you? Like, it was a bit scary. I'm like, what did I just do? Yeah, I'm scared just thinking about it. <laughs> I don't I don't think that, that would have been for me, but I do think it's really fascinating. And yeah. the other aspect about it too, it um, is the physical fitness piece of it. Did, oh. were, did Were you fit? I mean, did you run or anything before you started? <laughs> Girl, I was so out of shape. There is running from uh, trouble and, you know, you got that adrenaline that's just making you just run like Flojo or, or run like Hussein Bolt. And then you have having to run for physical fitness and you're just like, I haven't done this since high school and I didn't even do it then. I found an excuse to get out of it. Oh my gosh, strenuous. So you have Physical agility is one, it's, it's the, the most physical uh, of the armed forces is the Marines and the Army. We are the most physical because we are the ones that they call when they want to get a job, they call us to go in and get it done. That's why you have the snipers. That's why you have the SEALs. They have Navy SEALs, yes. That's maybe a component of the Navy, but not the Navy as a whole. Army, that every single person, it's all about physical agility. It's being able to go in and should you need to pull your, as they call it, a buddy to safety, you got to have the physical strength, upper body strength and the endurance to be able to pull that person from out of, of, of enemy fire. You know, so, you know, you can't be a weakling. You can't be a wimp. You can't be any of that. So therefore, um, they were huge on it. So everything was all about every single day, waking up at the crack of dawn. Oh my gosh, Christina, I am so not a morning person, still not a morning person. I learned how to discipline myself enough so that I could get the job done when I was there. But that was one of the hardest things because I probably was not waking up or even talking until maybe by breakfast time or the afternoon. So we're talking, we're having to get up at four in the morning. Wow, okay. Early. <laughs> uh, we that got up early. and the, we got up when it was dark and we went in when it was dark. So now we have this uniform that we have to wear. 
there's a certain way that you have to wear this uniform. You cannot be out of uniform. And then everybody has to be in uniform, meaning there had to be unity. So whatever the instruction was that uh, that we had to wear, even, even down to our, our physical fitness outfit, it was as serious as one couldn't just come downstairs if she wanted to wear her little a, a jogging outfit because she was cold. No, everybody had to be in the, everything had to match from the socks to the shoes, to the jacket, the pants. Um, when it was cold out and, we, and we're in our, in our physical uniform, they would allow us to wear our gloves. So, but everybody had to wear the gloves. It wasn't, oh, I'm good. I'm hot. I'm hot natured. Oh no. So when I tell you regimented, you, you use the exact word. Well, aren't they really teaching you that, you know, you're not an individual here? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It is all about when they say no iron team, that's probably where that started. There was no you doing it by yourself. We even had to have what was called a buddy because they were teaching us that you never leave anyone behind. So if you are a loner or you weren't used to being around people or, you know, again, talking about different walks of life. You had to get used to being with this person. So let's just say if they sent me to go and pick up the mail, somebody had to go with me. If they sent us to go and uh, pick up the food for lunch, somebody had to go with me. You never were by yourself. And I think part of that too was in basic training, we had, um, it was it was co-ed, but not in our dorm. So in our dorm room, it was all females. However, um, in the building itself, they, they might have had guys on the third floor. We were on the second floor, you know, and it, you know, just kind of went from there. But and, and and of course, you know, for safety reasons, because you, you have both of us right there. So you have uh, all of us that are um, we've been away. You know, you're there's no interaction. I was going to ask you, did anybody ever hook up at night or were, was there like somebody outside the door making sure that you. Oh, for sure. So they had what, what we had. Uh, it was called CQ. Thank you. CQ or uh, close quarters showing us that at all times um, that the post had to be made. So that was their way of, of instilling that, that the post had to be made. So in doing so, there was always somebody that was outside the door. So we had they were showing us then for when we got to our what they call permanent party to know how to do that. You really as as um, a person that's never done it, it's hard to stay up for 24 hours. That was what they were conditioning us to do because somebody always had to be on watch 24 hours. But they uh, they showed us, we did it in, in basic training. It was two-hour increments, and then it increased to four-hour increments. And then when we got to our school, which is the AIT, it went from six to eight and then 12 hour increments. And then when we got to permanent party, it was 24 hour increments. However, at when you got to 24 hours that next day, you were off. Wow, that's rough. Mm-hmm. And you're, are you just standing there for 24 oh, no. hours? No, no, no. It, it's not like, <laughs> it's not like uh, the soldiers at Buckingham Palace. It's not like that. Because <laughs> no. I would think if you can move around a bit, that might be a little better to help you stand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was exactly like that. So yeah, um, like your duty was, um, okay, so like for instance, what in our permanent party, I stayed in the barracks. So let's just say, um, Somebody came to the building 
they would greet them as, you know, th- there's an area that you went in. So there's a door that you're coming in and there's a desk that's there. So the person that's asked at the desk for that day is the person that is on CQ duty. And so if um, that you could just come into the building and just kind of roam around, like they would send somebody up because we didn't have phones in our rooms and all of that. We certainly didn't have cell phones. They would send somebody up to your floor to say, hey, you got a visitor or if the, if it was some uh, someone of an upper echelon and they came to see the commander or something like that, then they would send somebody, a runner, to go and go and get them. However, um, at nighttime, they it normally would be two people. So then they would have somebody that would walk in the barracks to go to each floor, making sure there was nothing going on. You know, we were good. We're all adults. You know, it's it's at this time now it's co-ed. Now it's co-ed. So it's if you wanted to have company, you could do that. That wasn't a problem. But they just still had to make their rounds. They had to, you know, write it down. Sometimes they had chores, same chores that we had when we were uh, in in basic, meaning stripping and waxing and buffing floors. Like they were all about appearances. Everything had to be shiny. They called it dress right dress. So it had to be neat. It had to be in order. It couldn't be out of place. It had to be clean at all times. And that was part of that duty. But how did you learn how to do that? I know they're really specific about exactly how you wear your clothes and how mm-hmm. you make your bed and mm-hmm. and things like that. Like, But when you first go, who shows you how to do that? The drill sergeants yelling in your face and don't get it right the first time. They would tell you to go and find some real estate, which is their way of saying, get down and give me some push-ups. I didn't realize that that was to help us become better like physical agility until the end of basic training. When my drill sergeant pulled me, you know, not pulled me to the side, but we were finally able to now be friends because at first we couldn't stand them. And so when you have a person that they show you once, maybe twice, because their thing is you got to get these instructions. You got to listen the first time and get it right the first time because you don't have time to mess up because that could be somebody's life. So we're talking about pressure being applied the moment that, you know, we get into, because you have them split second decisions that you have to make sometimes and they were conditioning us. So they had to break us down mentally, which was instill the fear of God. Your life from this point on all deals with military, not to say forget your civilian life, but this is how you're going to live life moving forward. You can't mix the two together because we got rules and regulations here. So they were showing you how they were building us up mentally and they were building us up physically. And the same time, they had to take us and hands-on show how, like, Christina, it was so bad. Our lockers, when we were in basics, like, we each had a locker. Our lockers even had to be a certain way. When I tell you neat, even to the degree of our hangers, I kid you not, you can ask anybody this, our hangers with our uniform that was hanging up had to be I think it was either three or four fingers wide. The uniform that was on it had to hang a certain way, like the uniform was starched. So the arm, all the hangers had to be hanging a certain way. So we're talking about instilling OCD in us, whether we wanted to be OCD or not. They were teaching us how to be OCD. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, socks had to be rolled up a certain way. Our underclothes had to be rolled up a certain way. The uniform that was hanging up had to be done a certain way. If they ever open your closet and or your or your locker 
and it wasn't right, or you just kind of said, you know, I'm just do whatever I want to do with it. Please be rest assured that when you came back from whatever training you were dealing with, they had had tossed your locker, meaning they threw everything out and they made you do it over. I mean, it's easy for us to laugh about it, but I would, yeah. if that happened to me at the time, I would just be mortified. It mortified. Did people, would you hear people crying in their beds at night? Yes. <laughs> for real? For real? <laughs> Girl, let me tell you something. When Were I you played, one of them, Marquita? <laughs> actually, no, I wasn't because I was already built to handle something tough. Now, was I mad often? Oh, yes, ma'am. Like I, I had to go and do some push-ups every now and again because it's something I didn't get right. And in my mind, I was cursing them out, but I didn't let it slip my lips because you know that was a whole different conversation. Yeah. But yeah, no, it was some females that, that you could tell that they came from the good side of the tracks. You can tell that they were dainty and they for whatever reason they joined something physical like this. And I mean, you would hear the sniffling at night. And it's just like, what can you do? You know, you, you don't want to go over and you don't want to um, pacify them too much, but just kind of give them a word of encouragement. Like, girl, you got this. We got this. You know, you're you're not the only one. Everybody misses their parents or just try to give them some type of word of encouragement because who wants to hear that? Like, I don't want to start crying. Girl, shut up. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? It's it's even though you're going through it together to yeah. some degree, you're going through mm-hmm. it alone because everyone has their own experience. Their own experience. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, did you ever have a moment or moments where you were like, why the hell did I do this? Did I do this? I think for the first couple of weeks, I, um, you know, I was a little, um, what did I do? Because I wasn't used to it. Um, Definitely the first, first couple of weeks, I was missing my family. I was missing my friends. I was missing uh, what I knew was a way of life. but the more that I would read about the different success stories and, and, and all of the different countries that I, I just knew I was going to go and visit and stuff that I was going to do, it, it motivated me to say, I can do this. Let me stick it out. So yeah. after a couple of weeks, I was good after that. So when you entered the military, did you think that you were going to be a lifer? I did. Oh my gosh. That was once I, again, started because we had a handbook. So a lot of what they taught us, like they taught us and then they would say, well, go back and reinforce because we got quizzed often. So our, our mind, our faces was always in this book. And I started reading about the different ranks. I started reading about the different uh, facets of, of who did what. And there was one particular group that it was, okay, so I was enlisted, which is, you know, I didn't go to school. I didn't come in. I didn't, I didn't go to West Point. I didn't come in with college credits. So typically somebody that had college credits could come in as an officer, whether you were a lieutenant or you were a commanding officer, you initially got put into a higher rank and grade than those of us that were enlisted. So they, even though they might be, shoot, 19, 20 years old, and here you are 30 years old and you've been in the military for a good amount of time, they still outranked you and they could tell you what to do. And and that proved to be a, a problem for a lot of people. But nonetheless, that that wasn't my situation. However, there was a group that was between that you were considered enlisted, but you had the responsibilities or you had the privileges of officer. And that was what was called a warrant officer. 
And that was my goal. And that was what I was, okay, I'm just going to set my mind to this. Of course, I was looking at the pay, you know, here we go back to that money thing again. And I'm like, yes, this is definitely what I want to do. And so I started to ask the questions of, well, what do I need to start studying or, or, or when can I do this? And that's when it was, well, you wait until you get to your permanent party and then you can start uh, doing, you know, for your career from there, because as basic and, and AIT, you got to get that down packed. And so until you get past that, you can't think about anything else. You've been really open with, and I did mention it when we when I introduced you when we first started mm-hmm. out that you at some point you were sexually assaulted in the military. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So can we talk about that? Sure. Uh, so um, when I finally get to my permanent party, my first duty station was Panama. Nowhere near my wish list that they told me when, but when I first joined <laughs> the military, and they made it seem like I was going to be back home and. You know, I was going to live not far from all of my friends and I was going to have like this great job and all of this stuff. Like I just knew I was going to get back to that part of of normalcy in my life. Nowhere near. I don't even think they even paid attention to. I think they gave us three areas that we could choose from. And I was like, uh, this country is is not on this paper. Like we're, we're nowhere near the three states that I said I wanted to live in. Like are we not going to pay that any mind? And so um, they uh, had to do it based upon, um, I guess, what can I say? Uh, Personnel. Everything is all about numbers in the military. So they needed to have a telecommunication specialist that had a certain score and average that was a female, that was a minority in this particular duty station, just so happened to be in Panama in an MP unit. So military police acts just like regular police. You know, I kind of had felt some type of way about it because I'm coming from a neighborhood where police were not very welcome. They were not liked. And I'm just like, you know, God really has a sense of humor to put me somewhere where I had to learn how to accept our differences and just, let's just get the job done. And so um, I didn't know that this was a thing with the upper echelon of military personnel and as they called us newbies, especially females, especially ones that had low rank and especially ones that were young in age that they figured were young, dumb, and stupid. And uh, I, I primarily, I fell victim twice. So the, the first time, um, they use words, Christina. It's not like what you see on TV where you're in some dark alley and you hear the footsteps behind you and somebody just kind of snatches you and they cover your mouth and, you know, they, they physically assault you. It's not that because they know enough to know that bruises and wounds need to have some type of explanation. So they learned, remember I said, it's all about breaking us down mentally so that we have uh, a, a natural fear of those that are in authority. They also showed us that it's their word against ours. And they also have a way of having, they're using their rank to get what they want it done. Even when it comes to, to paperwork, like they, there were picks and chooses and favorites that I saw. I mean, people were getting away with things. I'm just like, how are you doing that? 
And it's, oh, well, you know, I'm in really good with Sergeant so-and-so and so-and-so. And I'm just like, wow, like this, people were, they just were finding ways to get around stuff while being in. And I don't know, it, 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 it was baffling to me because again, I thought that everything was all supposed to be just regimented and you don't even think about doing something like that. Like you could get into major trouble, but people have a way of getting around. But nonetheless, um, there was a lieutenant. He was a lieutenant the first time. This was a lieutenant that was in my duty station. And he was showing me that he was, I don't even want to say it was even interest. Like I thought that it was an interest. He was okay looking, you know, he was, let me not, let me not lie. He was very nice looking, but he was not my type. So I never, I never allowed his advances towards me. I just saw that you're eyeing me. Hey, you know, and I would keep it moving. And, um, well, would you have been allowed to date him? I would have because I'm I'm permanent party. It would, it wasn't, it would not have been allowed if I was in my schooling, my AIT or, or definitely not in basic training. Like we were hands off to anybody that was permanent party. The moment you become permanent party, you are allowed and free to date whoever you wanted to. So I guess he wasn't used to his advances being rebuffed, but they were with me because, you know, I he just wasn't my type. Uh, but he caught me coming from, uh, okay, so in the barracks, there's one, two, three, like four floors. And on each floor, they had what would be considered like dorm rooms. And I had one roommate at the time. And then I moved to another room later on that had, I had two roommates. So some rooms determine how big, some rooms also determine who got it based upon your rank. There were like some sergeants that kind of had like a higher ranking that they could have a room to themselves because once you hit like a certain rank, you don't have to share with somebody that was of a lower rank like me, male or female. And so I had a roommate and, um, in the middle is where our bathroom was. So of course, you know, you want to go there dressed accordingly or whatever, or depending on how close the bathroom was, you possibly could kind of escape out, you know, with uh, partly dressed because you're running to your room. And that's what I did. And he caught me at that time. So needless to say, long of the short, um, he used words that were, if you don't do this, then I'm going to do this, this, and this, because he saw that I wasn't budging. I'm like, why are you in my room? I'm trying to get dressed. Uh, no, my roommate is not here. I'll tell her you came by. And that was all a ploy. And um, with me being young and me thinking about everything that I had to give up to get to this point and that I had sacrificed, I think for a moment, I kind of blanked out so that I would not be in the moment. Just do what you need to do because all I could think about was I'm not going to lose all of this behind whatever. So let me just get through it. I don't even know if he, if, if what he's saying is true, but I don't want to find out. I just got here. I don't want to make life hard for me. And I just kind of took it, you know? Um, then, then later on, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sitting on my bed, you know, Thank God that, thank God it was not long. <laughs> thank God he was not blessed in that category where it was, it was a few minutes, but it felt like an eternity, but it was a few minutes, you know? Um, I guess it was just so much that was built up because he had been eyeing me for so long that he probably was so excited that, you know, he, 
it, it didn't go the way I guess that he probably wanted. And at that time, you know, that's when my roommate was coming in. So, you know, she sees me like, you know, sitting here, he's kind of leaving out. And, you know, he, he was saying something. I don't know. I, I wasn't even really present mentally. And so when she came in, she was looking at, she was like, what's wrong? Like what happened? I was like, um, I think I was, you know, and she was like, oh, you too. So obviously at this point, this is a thing. So then she commenced to telling me her situation with him. And I said, well, what do we do? I mean, like, this isn't right. Like, what do we do about this? And she was like, girl, there's nothing you can do. And I said, are, are you kidding me? Like, what do you mean? Like, no, there's got to be somebody we could tell. So now, I'm, you know, I'm getting hype and, you know, I'm just like, no, this, this isn't cool. Like, how, how do you just do this? And she, you know, was kind of trying to talk me into a way of, just kind of deal with it. You know, we're soldiers. It's what comes with the territory. You can't let it break you. Just get, just get stronger by it. You know, eventually he, he leaves you alone. You're like all of this pep talk. And I'm saying, you've got to be kidding me is what I'm thinking. So I took her advice. I, you know, tried to ask a little bit around and some of the other women were, were very closed mouth, didn't want to talk about it acted like, you know, girl, just whatever, get over it type of thing. And I'm just like, what do you mean? So eventually I did. I avoided him at all costs. Thank God he ended up getting transferred out somewhere, not shortly after. So I didn't have to deal with that. A year later, I'm on deployment. I'm in South America and we are in tent coverings. So I was sent out first as telecommunications specialist to go and and to uh, make sure that the perimeter is is um, we have the communications going on. We have like big wigs that were going to come out there because there was there was some type of treaty that they were dealing with. I know it was dealing with Panama and something going on in South America. I just can't remember at the time because this was you know in the nineties, and so it was very important that this treaty was going to go through smoothly. And no telling how long we were going to be out there. So, you know, we were all kind of sent in phases. So we get out there, we're doing our thing, you know, stuff is fun. We're hanging out with South Americans and, you know, learning about some places and all of that. So then we do have the big wigs that do come and they're away from their, their duty station, which is in Panama. They're away from their families, their wives, and Evidently, you have some of these young girls that were carrying on relationships with some of the big wigs, knowing that they were married and it was just something fun to do. Well, I'm assuming that they just think that all, again, <laughs> young privates, as we were called, like everybody was supposed to be down for this. No, we're not. Some of us do have some morals and some scruples, but nonetheless, um, I was walking from doing my 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 round of making sure that uh, I as as security because again you know we're MP I'm not an MP but I was walking with an MP and I, they went one way and I went the other to make sure that you know nobody was sneaking in or out stuff was secure there was no suspicious looking bags like you know we were dealing with South Americans not everybody was 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 happy about this treaty so you know it's just being a soldier and. Christina, um, there was one, he was a sergeant major, big, burly looking guy. 
And he always kind of gave me the willies every time I saw him. But, you know, it's like you have to give honor and respect. Happened to be out there as well. I guess, you know, like I said, we were sent in phases. So his phase came in which um, like he was part of the upper echelon. And so I I guess maybe they might have uh, coming from their meeting and they uh, had alcohol and, you know, whatever. Clearly he was, he was very drunk. He was inebriated. Like, I mean, you could smell it coming from out of his pores. You could smell it on his breath. He kept asking me to go and bring this report and do this and do that. And so did that. And, um, and then on top of that, we were in South America. So it's hot. And he was just like sweating. And it, it was just like, oh my God, like, is there anything else, sir? Because I have something else that I need to do. And, um, he said, yeah, you know, there is something else that you can do. And I'm like, okay, well, what is it? Because I'm, you know, I'm trying to hurry up. And so he snatched me into the tent and I was like, uh, what, like, what, 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 what are you, are you okay? It's what, what is going on? And he was just like, you know, do you know how long I've been having my eye on you? And, uh, you know, you, you've got so much potential and, you know, you, you just, it's just something about you, you know, just all of these things. And yet I'm just like, okay, thank you. I, I appreciate it. Uh, I have a mentor. <laughs> can I, can I go? And I guess it just overtook him. And he, that one, that was physical, held me down and had his way. That one was the one that affected me the most because now you're bringing up the memory that was embedded that I had at some point in time had finally gotten over. Okay. At some point in time, I'm just like, okay, I've, I've, I've been through worse. I've seen worse. This wasn't that bad. You know, I'm, I'm not trying to be, be crass, but, um, you know, it, I'm thinking to myself, you know, he, he, he could have beat me up or, you know, he could have did whatever thinking about the first one. So I had to justify in order for me to get over this one. There's no justification for that. Why, why would you do this? You know, I'm a, I'm a, we're, we're, we are on the same team. So now we have an armed force that has to protect a country from the enemy on the outside. But how do you protect yourself from the enemy from within? You know, how, how, do, how do you do that? And it messed me up. So I ended up going to, go ahead. I'm, well, first of all, I'm sorry that that happened. Thank you. So you left the tent, I guess. Yes. After that event. And yes. what did you do? Did you tell anybody? I did. Um, Thankfully, that either next day or the day after, it was I was on the the um, interval to be able to go back. I don't want to say home, but to our duty station, which was in Panama, and um, so I was able to hide, you know, at that time, um, and and kind of stay out of the way. And until you know we left, we took a jumbo plane back to to fly back, you know, to Panama. And, um, as soon as I got back, I looked for my commanding officer and 
by the time I fell in his office, I was so distraught. I was just could not get my keep myself together. And he was like, what him and I were very cool, very cool. It's it's almost like, you know, I could have those privileges with him. Like I, you know, I could get away with certain things. I didn't, I never took advantage of, I just had a way that with certain places and, and spaces, I have some type of favor that comes on me that there's just something about me, as my drill sergeant told me at one time, that I shine. You know, and and around a group of people or wherever I'm at, it's not anything that I can hide and it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But I never took advantage of that. So, again, um, let's just say if I wanted to break curfew, if it was something like that and I could call and say, hey, you know, sir, you know, we're doing this, we're doing that. Is it okay? I've got so and so and so and so with me. Is that all right? Stuff like that. You know, it it was it was good, um, you know, favor or, or opportunity. But this, he had never seen me, like you said, you always see me chipper and upbeat. And I was always joking and just having a good time. You know, I was the the it girl, you know, I was always going to the, we called it the NCO club, the non-commissioned officers club. It was always something. I was just fun. And to see me like this, like I am just balled up and, you know, he's just like, what, what is going on? Like he, he was getting scared. He's like, what happened? He thought maybe something had happened at home because he knew I had a son and um, at, at the same time, I was trying to get my son to come out and to live because I was going to be out there for a couple of years. And when I was finally able to catch my breath, I started with what happened with the first lieutenant. He was not surprised. He had heard that already, but nobody was ever like coming forth. So there was nothing that he could do about it. He said he wished that he would have known then he would have done something because he didn't like the guy. But when I told him about this one, That one brought tears to his eyes because I told him in detail what happened. But the sad part about it, Christina, was that this guy was also his friend. And it put him in, I guess, what you would call a precarious situation where it would it would cause dereliction of duty to a degree because he had to figure out now he's the commanding officer. So now he's over everybody that's in this unit, including this guy. But however, they were friends. So he had to figure out a way on how he was going to do his job, which was first, and try to salvage. You can't do that. Did that kind of piss you off? Oh, it very much pissed me off, which is how I ended up getting out. Because now at this point, I'm seeing that you're dragging your feet and you're asking me, me, the victim, to be patient. I don't know about patience. I'm young and I'm a firecracker. You know, I I had learned enough discipline to not do anything wild, you know, to get thrown out. But now at this point, I'm enraged. I'm angry. I I, I want some justice. I want something to be done. I want I want you to show me that you're on my 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 team. I want you to show me that as I'm in your care, that you're taking care of me as your young soldier. Where is that at? And at that point, after it was going on a month, now it's going on two. Now I'm starting to become a little unhinged. Well, at that time, was there a procedure in place for how to handle those kinds of things? Like if somebody reported a a crime at all? I don't even know if there was a sex crime issue, but what should he have done at that point? 
You know, honestly, and and the funny thing about it, even with you mentioning that, you would think that there was being that I was in an MP unit and they were responding to domestic calls. I mean, just because we were military didn't mean that people didn't have personal issues. You know, their husbands and wives are fighting or boyfriends and girlfriends, you know, are getting into it. So it was always some type of action going on in which, you know, they had to be called to. You would have thought that we would have even had some type. Now, let me back up. I was not an MP. So they might have had a procedure towards those that were. I was essential personnel. I was assigned to the unit, but I was not an MP. So maybe they didn't feel the need to bring us into these trainings that they had, which they should have. But I didn't know because if I had known, damn what my other roommate would have said, I would have did. I would have said something about it, would have followed procedure because now all I know is follow the rules. So yeah, if I would have known, I would have done something. To this day, I'm pretty sure they probably have one now, but they didn't have one then. So what were you expecting would happen? In my mind, it was all about uh, uh, being demoted. It was all about getting thrown out, losing. The the worst things that you can do to somebody that has served in the military for as long as they did was to demote them and then put them out with a dishonorable discharge. It's almost like going to prison for a crime that you didn't commit and you spending about 20 years and all of a sudden they come up and say, you know what? We, we finally found the proof that you didn't do it. Um, here's, you know, a million dollars. Good luck with your life. It's like, are you kidding me with me having, you know, just think about the prison system that they, they have to protect themselves. They're seeing all types of atrocities. They're snatched from their loved ones, from their family. They do all of this in order to survive. And now you want to come with some proof to say, I tried to tell you all along. You know, but when you have somebody that has has suffered, they're away from their families. They're spending much time. You know, they've committed and they keep reenlisting. And, you know, all of this that they've had to go through to get to these rankings, which do not come easy for you to now take that from them and have a dishonorable discharge. That to me was worth it. That's what should have happened. Yeah. And I know that there's certain benefits that you can't get. Would have lost that too, you and your family. So now your family would have found out because now it would have been publicized. Oh, I was all for that. I wanted that to happen. So when did this friend of yours, this commanding officer, did he do anything? Did you have to keep asking? I had to keep asking. And then it finally got to a point where, because I saw that it was a conflict, I knew enough to say for me, let me do something so that I could at least save myself. And that something was, um, at that time, I was in a relationship and we had broken up when, you know, after the, the first incident and it was in between the first incident and the second incident. So we had broken up. And when the second incident happened, I n- needed to, I feel like, escape to something that could Something that made me feel like I was, that it was not my fault or that I, I am, yes, I am a woman, but am, am, what did I do? Like, you know, am, am, am I bad? Like, did I bring this on myself? Like, you know, just all types of thoughts. So, so we ended up getting back together, but I never shared with him what happened. He saw that something had happened. He knew something was not right about me. He just didn't know what, because I didn't know how to articulate. Because now at this point, 
if I say this to him, he's probably going to think I'm nasty and, you know, oh, you know, type of thing. Like, that's what I'm thinking because that's how I was feeling. And so I never said anything. Well, anyway, we get back together and I ended up getting pregnant with my daughter. Once I saw that nothing was being done, mind you, I said that earlier, there are only very few things that would allow you to get out of the military because once you sign your name, that's it. You don't, oh, I miss my family or no, nah, I'm not cut out for this. There's none of that. There, there has to be an underlying reason or issue. And it's either one that you've done something wrong in which, you know, you're, you're being court-martialed or um, they're putting you out behind it because it's, you're clearly not following the rules, which is bad. Or um, you are physically not able to keep up with the demands of meaning that we had. There was a certain uh, body type that you had to have in order to stay in. And they were often testing us, doing these physical agility tests. And if you didn't pass those tests after so many times because people were gaining weight, certain jobs that they had, they were not working out like they should have, they could put you out for that. That's a different type of discharge where you can still keep your benefits. But then anything other that we were in charge of as as the military member, one of them being pregnancy. So I saw that as my golden opportunity, because if I did not no telling what I was capable of doing, especially because now I'm starting to see he's, this guy has come back. I'm seeing him around and um, I would get so angry that I'm just like, I know how my temper is and I can't afford to do something that could really and truly cause some potential harm. And so um, I used my pregnancy as an excuse to get out because I saw that nothing else was going to be done. So that was the the disability. That was the basis for the disability. Uh, what, What part? Well, you are, you're a service disabled veteran. Was that the disability? It was pregnancy. Oh, ma'am. Oh, it wasn't. Okay. So let's, there's still more here then. It is. Remember when I said, you know, I was going through all these, these emotions and, you know, just all of these different things were starting to take place. I get out and I try to do the same thing that I did from the first one, which was some kind of way I need to move on. Well, not when you have something traumatic happen to you, you, you can't just press past that and just, you know, it happened, it's done. Let me just, doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. So I got out in 96 and I was doing, I was like uh, army reserve off and on. Cause I still wanted very much so to be a part of the military. But by this time, my whole attitude towards military had completely changed and shifted my whole attitude. It just was not, it it wasn't working. So I was, you know, off and on with it. I was, you know, starting to just not see it as the great thing that it was. And, um, so I, at, at 2002, I was done, but by 97, 98, I started noticing that there was some things going on that I could not quite put my thumb on. Didn't know what it was. I just noticed differences about myself. I was dealing with bouts of depression. I was, you know, having racing thoughts. I could not watch anything that dealt with, um, you know, any type of physical attacks on women on TV. I would turn from it. Or if I had heard about it or if I saw it on the news or in the newspaper, it, it would, I would cry or, or sob uncontrollably like, 
there was something clearly was just not right. And then, you know, I get myself together and I would push, push past it. That only, you can only do that, but for so long. So now we're going into the year of the 2000s on forward. And I'm just like, I was alienating myself from family and from friends. I didn't want to be around anyone. I was having a hard time being uh, uh, connecting to my children as far as a mother is concerned. I was doing for them the way that I knew how to do that never stopped. But as far as really being engaged, like I wanted to, oftentimes I was in my own world. Um, I, I was, I was moving in a methodical manner so that I could take care of the everyday uh, responsibilities as a parent. Cause now I'm single parent, you know, and um, not able to, wasn't getting the help that I was supposed to get, you know, from, from their fathers. And I, I still had to make it happen. Okay. So we move on from there, but yet I'm just like, I'm no longer keeping a smile on my face. Um, everything is getting on my nerves. You know, my patience is very thin. Um, I'm struggling. And then I started dealing with chronic homelessness. It's like I couldn't keep a job, not because of my, my, my work performance, but because there was always a situation going on and it caused me to either be late or I was tardy. It was always something. And that affected my job or the fact that I couldn't even get myself out of the bed sometimes mm. to go and even work this job. It was and bad. you weren't like that before. I was nowhere near like that. Nowhere well, near like that. I want to go back to the commanding officer because it's really pissing me off the way he handled it. Yeah. Did he ever report it? You know, I don't know. So he did never- anything ever happen to him or the other guy? Not to my knowledge. Now, he. I'm pretty sure... That, you know, because like how we know how people do in society, once you feel comfortable enough to feel like you've gotten away with something, oh, I think without a shadow of a doubt, they probably tried it again. And maybe at that time something has happened, but I lost contact with a lot of people. And, you know, back then we didn't have cell phones and you didn't have, you know, uh, camera phones and all that stuff. We, we have a regular phone. I slowly but surely started even losing that because now they're moving around from duty station, duty station, phone numbers are changing. I lost contact with a lot of people. So I wasn't able to try to keep track or to see or whatever, because at that time, what was going on in my mind is if I told this person and he did not take it as serious as I thought he should have and done something about it, who's going to do something about it? So Christina, I kept it to myself. And I did not tell anyone, not even my family, until something was able to be done about it, which is where the disability comes in at, until the year 2013. So you have from 95, 96, up until 2013, all that time, and nothing was done. So how did something get done? Because it sounds like, and you'll tell us what happened, it sounds like you did get some kind of... um... I guess, disability status specifically because of that? Because of that, yes. So what happened was now it's starting to become a common thing, not just in the Army, but in all of the armed forces, especially the Navy. A lot of stuff was going on on the ships. So now you have women that, unlike me, or I should say like me, but were probably more persistent than me, now you've got more cases coming forth. 
Now you also have, this is happening to men as well. So it's not just women, it was men too. And you're not going to have the same stories coming from different people, different armed forces, but the same story and there be no truth to it. Now we're starting to get national recognition. And because they knew that this stemmed back years, they wanted to give everybody the opportunity to be able to come forth. And instead of trying to make you prove, because it ain't but so much proof that you can have, they could look at you and could tell and could see the proof. Because a lot of people, that's not, you, you, you can't just get through a traumatic experience like that and just bounce back and everything is all good. It's, that's just not the norm. Mm-hmm. And so I, um, at the time from 97 up until 2013, I had gotten wind that I was supposed to be, uh, receive certain benefits from the military. And I, uh, started pursuing after those benefits because mind you, I am dealing with a, a, a housing issue that was stemming from the issue that I didn't know at the time had a name. It didn't have a name at the time. I just know I needed help and I need to get it from somewhere. Y'all owe me. I'm going to start with you first. That was my mindset. But because I didn't know how to tackle this behemoth of a giant, I often was being denied. I was going for my education benefits, which I had paid into. And I was going for physical uh, benefits because now, you know, just from the physical agility of things that we had to do, I'm starting to see physical changes in my body. I wasn't even thinking about the mental, you know, because I'm just like, eventually, you know, it, it'll get better. But uh, 2013, I'm going to the same office and where I have gone to so many times before, submitting yet another claim, as we called it, for assistance. And I see to the left of me this poster that was talking about, and you know, the military is huge on acronyms and it said MST, military sexual trauma. And I saw it and looking at the words, I understood it, but I couldn't believe that that's what, let me just make sure because I'm like, I don't want to get my hopes up high and this is not what they're talking about. Maybe something else has occurred. And sure enough, I get up to the front desk and uh, the attendant explained what it meant. And I said, okay, so if I dealt with this and it was in this year, are you saying that I could finally get something done about my situation? And she said, yes. And it took off from there. I'm so happy that you at least got some, uh, something. Yes. Some acknowledgement, some, you know, recognition for that experience. Mm -hmm. But it does still piss me off that nothing ever happened to him. Or them. You know what? I'm 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 gonna be divine again. I have learned that throughout life, you know, people call it karma. I don't say that word, but you know, it's what people can relate to. I, without a shadow of a doubt, I I can almost if if I could have been at some point in time, have traveled to wherever they were, I honestly believe Christina. Something has happened that they didn't get away with it, whether it was by the military and they got caught up because, you know, they probably got comfortable and and did it to the wrong person or life itself ended up, you know, taking justice out on them or, or recompense to a degree. And that 
once I realize that there's nothing that nobody in this world can do, whether it's good or bad, that there is not some type of action or reaction to the action, whether good or bad. When I learned that that was a, a law, a universal law, that gave me all of the peace that I needed because I knew that without a shadow of a doubt, there's no way that this could have happened, especially to a person like me, and they would have continued to get away with it. Absolutely not. Do you know, and I, I totally agree with you about karma. Mm-hmm. Do you know, because I know you're not in the military anymore, but right. do you know what they've done to get ahead of this? Do they have procedures in place now? Yes. Are they taking this stuff seriously? Yes, ma'am. They do. Um, when, it, when it's proven, you are court-martialed. You will get jail time. More than likely, you either probably will get fined or uh, I think their way of fining is to uh, demote, which means they reduce you in rank because every ranking structure comes with an increase of pay. So when you've gotten up to a certain ranking and now they take that rank from you, that means that not only do you not get that money anymore while you're waiting for this trial or whatever is about to happen, but then you also lose your benefits which means that not only does it affect you, it affects your family. And on top of that, they've gotten more public with it. So you might even be mentioned in the local newspaper in your area or just in, in maybe in some other part of the United States, because there are things that were happening on these ships and boats and other places. And th- the media would take it and they would just have a field day with it. So there was a whole lot more that got involved. So I guess in a sense, I vicariously was able to get justice through someone else or through another victim. And they were able to get the recognition or be able to get maybe get some type of public attention to it. So that was my way. I had to glean from that. So how are you dealing with the trauma though? Because that's not something that just goes away. No, it's not. I, I eventually had to end up getting therapy. So what the, the, the service-connected disability is what it's common known now is PTSD. PTSD, though, is not just a military thing. This is any, any, anything. PTSD can happen to anybody. Anybody can have a traumatic experience and can, it can develop into PTSD. And, but the thing about it is you have to be courageous enough and, and know that whatever happened, it's not your fault. However, there's something that does need to be done about it. And most of the time it is getting some type of therapy or going to talk to someone in order to, uh, to, to be able to get it out because you can't hold that in. Like our bodies are not meant to hold traumatic experience or to keep reliving. Like something has to be done at some time in order to get it out. That is how people end up phys- getting physical ailments. Trauma can, can, uh, resort into some type of sickness, whether it's a stroke or maybe even cancer or maybe even some type of heart disease or something. That's how our bodies have to formulate. And that is how, because that trauma is trying to escape and it's going to turn into something. You got to think you're mad, you're angry, you're bitter, you're resentful. Then it turns into pain and then you're upset. It's all of that stuff. Those are negative emotions and energy that turns into something, energy we can't see. But it, it it can morph into something that we can see and that we can feel. So do you feel like therapy has helped you tremendously? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm now back to my jovial, joyful uh, 
person. Um, I'm able to smile. I'm able to, to laugh and to find humor in things. Um, I've gotten back in touch with my emotions because I was numb on the inside for quite some time. I uh, was a, and finally getting to a place of talking about it. Like you could never <laughs> get me to be comfortable enough because I was ashamed. Mm-hmm. I was embarrassed. I felt like nothing. My self-esteem was affected, self-worth, even self-respect. I didn't even respect myself because I felt like, what did I do so bad in my life that this had to happen to me? I I didn't know how to get beyond it. And then on top of that, I was keeping it to myself because I'm like, I'm a whole grown woman. And this happened at this time. Who's going to I don't want to say believe it, but it was like, who am I going to tell this to? What, what, what is the purpose of me telling it? Nothing can be done. I don't even know what these people are anymore. And so when you're harboring something like that and don't even want to look at yourself in the mirror because all you see is ugly, all you see is this is you, whatever, whatever I felt at that moment, I didn't have good thoughts towards myself. So yes, it absolutely helped me. Well, those are all the things that you just described. You know, they're not uncommon for people who have um, experienced sexual assault for for them to describe it that way. Yeah. Yeah. I know a coach who always says that of every experience that we ever have in our lives, there's always some gift that comes from it. Wow. Even if it's a negative experience, which can, which Mm -hmm. can be really hard to really grasp, especially the first time you hear it. But see it like that, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you could you see those experiences as having some gift that came from it? I do. Um, honestly enough, I would say that my gift from that is if for nothing else, it showed me two things. One, that I am really and truly a fighter. I am determined not to lose to a degree. You may knock me down, but I'm going to get back up. And I believe the gift in that is that as women, whether it is as a Black woman and and what we've dealt with just throughout life, period, but as a woman across the board, no matter what your nationality is, we as women have gone through a lot. And if for nothing else, that I can speak my truth, walk in my truth and say, hey, this is what happened to me, but it did not define me. I'm going to break out of this barrier. And if I can do it, you can too. And sis, guess what? You're not by yourself. I understand how you feel. I know exactly what you went through, but you can do this. That is the gift that I want to impart to every woman that I come across that, even if it may not have been in that, maybe they might have experienced something traumatic in which, um, you know, their husband might have left them for, uh, you know, another relationship. And maybe, you know, he treated her like crap and, you know, just practically acted like he didn't know who she was and just kind of left her high and dry. And, you know, he was her whole world. Or maybe even somebody that has been dealing with, mental issues that may not have come from a traumatic experience or it even might have, but in a different capacity 
or let's just talk about the fact that it did come from a sexual assault and they have no idea how to get beyond it. Somebody has to be a crutch and somebody has to be the shoulder to lean on at some time. So this is my way of fighting back. This is my way of saying, I might not have gotten them to physically. I might not have been able to uh, witness some type of justice being rendered to them. But every person that I help, every woman that I talk to, even man, even men that have dealt with this, every single one of you, let let me help you. I'm going to help you fight back. This is how we're going to do it together. Oh, I love that. Thank you. I love you. Oh, I love you more. You know <laughs> I'm so, I mean, I'm sorry that for you, that you had that experience and for any other woman or man who yeah. experiences that. Because I truly, I can't, of all the things that we can all experience as humans, mm-hmm. I really have a hard time seeing anything worse than a sexual assault. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's a violation on such a different level than mm-hmm. anything else I can imagine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for telling that story. No so problem. Publicly no. for sharing yeah. that. Yes, girl. Only for you. <laughs> well, there might be a few other people. <laughs> well, yeah. Okay. So yeah. So this is the third, the third time, but this is third time within a six-month time frame, time frame, as opposed to 94, 95 up until 2020 and 21, honey. Nope. <laughs> This was yeah. only aired in therapy and and to my family. Other than that, nah. Well, <laughs> I mean, that goes to show all the healing that has happened. Yes, absolutely. That's the word right there. Yes. And I love when you say that you're going to help other people. How are you going to do that? Because talk to me By about this? what your your vision is for your future. So... Um, you know, from how you and I have met, I've learned how they say something about an interchange or uh, how do they say like an interlocking, I guess. So taking what you want to do and mixing it with your story or what makes you and defines you. So because I have a love for entrepreneurship, which came from the fact that not only was I struggling you know, to uh, try to hold down a full-time job. Again, not because my, cause my, my work ethic is through the roof. Like I get that from my grandparents. I have a crazy work ethic. But when you're trying to deal and navigate through life's situations and, and circumstances that are just being thrown at you left and right, you can only be strong, but for so long. Okay, so that's one. And then two, you have um, my youngest son. He's on the spectrum for autism. And so now I'm dealing with a child that has, I don't like to say a disability, but he has a different ability. And he was also dealing with a physical challenge when he was born that caused me to have to take time that I couldn't really work because he needed, it was doctor's appointments and it was surgeries and all of these different things. So it's like, I'm I'm starting to get over one hurdle and here's another one. And so that's what pushed me towards, let me think of something that I can do because I'm able-bodied. Like at that time, I was going through my healing process and that was tremendous because we're talking about allowing trauma to now be talked about and to come forth that had been buried for years. Oh, that almost did me in. Like I, I, I had no choice but to have to deal with that. There was no way that I could have been around people. So 
I had to take a hiatus from working for a minute until I got myself to a, a, in a better place. However, you, you can't take time off from being a mother. You know, you can't take time off for that. And so um, it put me in a position where I said, well, while I'm having to deal with this, that, that, that love for wanting to work for myself and, and going back to when I sold the peanut butter cookies and the fried cheese and the, and the candy in middle school and even my little bout of being a bad girl, you know, all of that came to me. And I said, it's got to be something that I, I know it's something I can do. Let me think about what I'm good at and what can I do from home so that I'm still able to tap into bringing in some type of revenue because this, this money that I'm getting in disability, it's, you know, it's, it's not a lot. Um, there's something I should be able to do with this. And I started to go to networking events and I started to um, allow myself to start being around people and allowing myself to become um, a people person again, because that was always me. So this was my training and, and reaffiliating myself in a world, uh, in a public world, instead of just being isolated and being in my home and kind of being to myself. So I got interested in becoming a consultant. As I said earlier, I've always been one that wanted to help people. Um, I've always been one that when I see that you need help because of so many things that I went through, I found myself kind of giving resources to things. I'm like, it may have taken me some months to get through this, but if this can help them in some days, why am I going to keep it to myself? And I found just as many resources that I came across, whether it was for business, it was for work, or it was personal. That's how I formulated becoming a consultant. Now, my uh, uh, what I was interested in, the industry that I was interested in is construction and transportation. That took some time in order to get into that. It wasn't something that was so easy to come to me, especially as a woman. That's not an industry or an arena that men take kindly to women, especially a black woman being in. But it's okay. I held my ground. I did what I needed to do. But I found that it was easier for me to be the consultant and be the liaison as opposed to trying to have like this, this, this construction organization because that's not something that I did. So I found a niche that I could fit myself into. And then I just started consulting. That's so cool. Thank you. Because when you were telling your story, I was thinking, well, she really wanted a career in the military. I did. Do you ever think about that and feel like you missed out on what your goal was? Or do you just feel like that wasn't for you after all? No, actually, I found a way to still tie into it. And that is in government contracting. So although they might have won to a degree where you might have taken without the lifer that being given 20 plus years, you might have had, you might have taken that from me at that moment, but I am going to recoup that and now get still involved in the government, still involved to a degree where because I am a veteran. And because I am a veteran with a service-connected disability, the gift in it is that it put me in a position that now when I want to go after a government contract, I am pretty much a dream, a business owner's dream, because if we were to partner together, the government, which will look upon me favorably because I got out with an honorable discharge and because that looks good in their eyes, they are going to look at me first as a minority as a woman, as a veteran, and as a veteran with a service-connected disability first before anybody else. 
So I really didn't lose to a degree. I'm gaining even more. Well, that's so awesome. See, that's what I said earlier is that you always have this optimistic attitude and outlook on everything. And it It took some time, but here it is. (laughs) I love that. It's good. It's contagious. Yes. Thanks. So then is there anything you'd like to promote right now? I would actually. So um, uh, most of what we talked about today I do have a book that is coming out very soon and it's called Something Beautiful Out of Me. Um, I am looking for a tentative date in March in order for it to not only be done, but it will be uh, ready to be published and to uh, be presented to the world in which I do talk about more of not only my childhood, but you know when I was in the military and the people that I met and um, this journey that has gotten me to this point here. So I go into more detail. In, in the book. Yeah. Well, I, I would love to read it. Hopefully oh, you can good. send me a signed copy. Oh, you already know I am. <laughs> <laughs> and when you have it, everything together and it's published, give me the link and I'll put yes. that on the show notes so that people can find it. Yes, absolutely. Oh, thank you again, Marquita. I really enjoyed this so discussion. Welcome. You're so welcome. I appreciate you, Christina. Thank you for allowing me to share my truth on your platform. Um, I don't know who's going to see it. And although, uh, you know, I was very nervous (laughs) because I'm still learning how to, you know, allow myself to publicly be seen. And, um, but you just never know whose life it may change or, or where it may spark some type of hope, you know, Mm -hmm. and letting somebody know that no matter when it happened to you, whether it was military or whether it was, you know, as a civilian, if you're still here, you still have a fighting chance. Do something about it. You get them back by doing something about it, but it starts with you first. Get yourself together first. Get the help that you need. Tell somebody, you know, if you come across people that are naysayers, they're not your tribe. Find a tribe that can accept you for who you are and will support you while you're going through your healing phase and your healing process. Because I'm telling you, the moment that you do and you let it out, you will transform into the person that you are supposed to be and you will be so glad that you did it. That's great advice. And that's a great way to end our conversation. Thank you for giving me so much of your time. You're welcome. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for watching Wake Up Call. Thank you for listening to Wake Up Call, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find out more on my website, christinaprevitt.com. And be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading, learning, listening to, doing, basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now. Follow me on social media. Look up Wake Up Call, the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.